Welcome back, campers. That's Caitlin. And that's Genevieve. And we gotta talk about a serial killer today. It's been a minute since we've done a serial killer. Yeah. We're overdue for one. So we Mm. really went hard at it this time. (laughs) Was the truck stop killer considered a serial killer? Yeah, I guess that... Yeah, that's true. I he guess was. we haven't gone in depth like, yes. of the actual serial Yeah, killer. or when I say that, I mean I personally have not done a deep dive mm-hmm. into a serial killer and written a script and all of that stuff. So for the last two weeks, I have been deep into reading and researching, watching videos, all of that stuff about... Our not friend, Israel Keys, who we're going to be talking about today. Let's just take a second. Are you okay, Genevieve? You know, I'm here. What was the video that I sent you last night about, can you make me a wrap for my bunny that died? <laughs> a ruby a rabbit. A ruby the rabbit. R.I.P. Ruby. Like Life she wasn't, wasn't having, having it. it. <laughs> I came close to that (laughs) over the last couple of weeks, but I'm still here. I'm still having life. Sometimes I feel like it's not having me, but that's okay. I feel that. Yes. But you guys aren't here to hear us talk about Ruby the Rabbit (laughs) or our personal things. We're here to talk about true crime. And before we get into our story today, I have a question for everyone out there. How many of us have made our way home from work, pulled our car into the driveway, gathered up our coffee mug and cell phone, and closed the front door behind us before we've even consciously thought about how we got there? We know Caitlin and I have done that plenty of times. Mm -hmm. It's like its own type of muscle memory, navigating our route home, familiar and safe. But what if... On one of those familiar nights, just as you pulled into the driveway, a torrent of rain erupted out of the sky. So when you shut off your, say, happy little yellow Volkswagen Beetle, you grabbed an old newspaper and opened it above your head and shoulders before making the run inside. And what if, completely unknown to you, the sudden rain and your newspaper umbrella were two wrenches thrown into the meticulously thought-out plan of a killer idling in their car on the curb just in front of your apartment. And with those sudden wrenches, he put his car back into drive and slowly pulled away, and your front door closed behind you like it did every other day. We guess we will never know, but the scenario we just described to you is not a made-up anecdote. It was a real memory, shared in an interrogation room by none other than Israel Keys, one of the most terrifying American serial killers we've ever heard about. And as we dive into this story, which will be part one of a two-parter, we know you guys are going to be just as shocked as we were that Keys really isn't talked about nearly as much as all those infamous names we hear about like Bundy, Gacy, Dahmer, and the like. Of all the horrible stuff we've talked about on this show, 
This story is one that's actually kept us up at night. So let's get into it. Lights out, campers. During its summers, Alaska is the brightest place on the planet drawing families from all over the world who love an outdoorsy vacation in 22 hours a day of irresistible sunlight. Its winters, however, are a different story. In the near constant darkness and extreme cold, the isolation skyrockets addiction, depression, and crime. Anchorage, in particular, turns especially hostile and as one of the highest crime rates in America. Author James Missioner once said that, Alaska must be viewed as having two great characteristics, great beauty, but also implacable hostility. But despite its rugged nature, the Alaskan community is widely regarded as pretty trusting and hospitable. Locals are quick to be helpful to strangers, and you have to be given its harsh conditions, where minor inconveniences like a car breakdown in the middle of winter can quickly become deadly. It's a place where only the most adventurous and tough types of folks choose to build their life. And two such people were single dad, James Koenig, and his 18-year-old daughter, Samantha. James, who went by Sonny, was a trucker who knew his way backwards and forwards around Alaska's rougher side. And even though rumors followed his name around town that he was involved in the drug business, those who knew him also knew that there was nothing he loved more in this world than his baby girl, Samantha. On the Friday afternoon of February 3rd, 2012, Sonny was waiting anxiously outside of the Common Grounds coffee kiosk, where Samantha had been working as a barista for less than a month, hoping she would pull into the parking lot for her 1 p.m. shift. In the last 48 hours, Samantha had responded to none of Sonny's frantic texts or calls, and her phone was now dead and no longer ringing before going straight to voicemail, and Sonny was in full panic mode. The two of them were incredibly close and always texted or called each other throughout the day, but partway through her shift the previous day, Samantha had just stopped responding to Sonny's texts, and then she never came home. Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, who lived with her and Sonny, had been supposed to pick her up once her shift ended. But when Dwayne showed up in the pickup truck that he and Samantha shared around 8.30 p.m., he noticed that the kiosk was completely dark. And when he poked his head in the window, Samantha was nowhere to be found. Napkins and towels were also scattered around the floor of the kiosk. And that was weird. Samantha was a neat freak. And Dwayne would be shocked if she'd purposely left the kiosk like that. But he had to admit that the two of them had been having some problems recently. On that same evening, Samantha had accused Dwayne of flirting with other girls and they'd been fighting about it over text. He'd even called her to try and talk to her about it, but she said she couldn't talk. And so he'd gotten annoyed, said whatever, and just hung up the phone. So he hoped maybe she was still just pissed off and had gotten another one of her friends to pick her up. He drove home to the house he lived in with Sonny and Samantha, 
and at around 11.30 p.m., his phone lit up with a text from Samantha that said, quote, F you asshole, period. I know what you did. I am going to spend a couple of days with friends. Need time to think. Plan acting weird. Let my dad know, quote. Dwayne found this a little bit odd, but he stayed awake hoping Samantha would come home. Then, for whatever reason, at around three in the morning, he was overwhelmed with the feeling that he needed to go outside. When he opened the front door, Dwayne saw a tall man wearing a mask with the door open going through he and Samantha's truck. The man froze and stared at Dwayne for several seconds before shutting the door and walking away. When Dwayne went over to check the truck, Samantha's driver's license was missing from where she always kept it in the visor pocket. He went back inside, told James, and fell asleep. As Dwayne relayed all this to police, They pressed him hard as to why neither he or James reported Samantha missing right away, but they both gave police the same clear and simple answer. They genuinely didn't believe that the police would do anything until Samantha had been missing for 24 hours. Mm. Which I understand that thought process, but what I don't understand is how you walked out saw someone going through your truck and did nothing yeah that's i don't get that i really don't because even if you then are like okay she's pissed at me i'm i'm just gonna kind of wait it out for her to cool off i feel like that's a pretty normal response to have especially if you have been fighting with someone but that is such bizarre behavior that, again, Dwayne is not responsible in any way no. for Samantha's. And I mean, who's to say how we would react in the same situation? Yeah. Everybody reacts differently. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. But I am going to be a little judgy here and say that he should have called the police immediately. That is not in any way, shape, or form normal behavior. Even if she was not missing. Exactly. Somebody rifling through your truck in the middle of the night with a mask on? Hell no. I'm gonna call 911 immediately. (laughs) Not even that. It's Alaska. (laughs) Get your rifle in. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you like, got to rights me, that, to bear arms And I there. know that's not, like, yeah. the right response. Yeah. But to me, that's the normal response yeah. that I would expect from a state like Alaska. Yeah. That's just very bizarre. And if I was law enforcement, I would also be side-eyeing. Yeah. Why did you not say anything? Because, yes... And that's also not technically true. That That's a myth about yes. the missing 24 hours, um, especially because she's on that cusp of childhood mm-hmm. and adulthood. And through, as we will go on to see, there are law enforcement that refer to her sometimes as like a young woman, others that refer to her as a girl because she's 
in high school mm. they're all like of parental age so they're like an 18 year old that is a child yeah like to me that is a child and they treat her case as that of a missing child which i think is fully appropriate in this situation Agreed. and so yeah that's I, just and I, then it it sucks because you do hear the cases where people wait the 24 hours because they did call the cops and they're like yeah you have to wait 48 yeah. hours yeah but i think if they explained and like then the we're circumstances. like circumstances and then we're like and then there was a man with a mask going through her truck they'd be like oh shit okay that's probably not just her ditching to blow off steam that ah that's so weird to me yeah yep samantha koenig was officially reported missing the following morning of thursday february 2nd 2012 when the barista who showed up to open the kiosk following samantha's shift noticed that some things in the booth were oddly out of place and that the cash register had been completely emptied out. On the surface, there was nothing to indicate that Samantha had been taken anywhere against her will. There were no real signs of struggle in the kiosk and the panic button right next to the light switch hadn't been pressed. At first, law enforcement thought it might be possible that after the tension between her and Duane, Samantha had decided to clear out the register and hit the road. Apparently, this wasn't uncommon in Anchorage. But was it uncommon for her? Right, like, exactly. Yeah. And at this point, I don't think they have much information because it sounds like not even Dwayne or James, a.k.a. Sunny, were the ones that reported her mm-hmm. missing. It was her co-worker that first made the call to police. So they knew nothing yet. Yeah. And so I could see where... That looks like, oh, you know, she just decided to say, fuck it, I'm taking this money and leaving before they have any other information about her. So immediately they're not on high abduction Mm -hmm. alert and they did not tape it off as a crime scene. They didn't do anything like that. They just kind of then continued with the day at the kiosk. So... That was a whoopsie number one (laughs) right there. Oh, yeah. Can't wait to see how many numbers we get through. Yeah. Sunny wasn't buying this, though. Samantha was a popular and kind high school senior who occasionally cut class and had maybe done a few drugs here and there, but she was known to be very responsible at her job. And yes, she and Dwayne had their couple troubles, but he knew that she truly loved him and never would have just taken off after they'd had a fight. And she especially would not have ghosted Sonny after over 48 hours. As soon as FBI Special Agent Steve Payne received the surveillance footage from the kiosk's security camera, he wasn't buying the runaway theory either. Just before Samantha's shift was scheduled to end at 8 p.m., the silent security camera footage shows her appearing relaxed and chatting with a customer through the sliding window of the kiosk like she did countless times during the day. The video is grainy, but still visible enough to clearly see that two minutes and six seconds into the tape, Samantha calmly walks over and flips off the light switch right next to the kiosk's panic button, raises her hands, and turns her back away from the shadowy outline of a tall male figure outside. Over the course of 17 agonizing minutes, 
all the hallmarks of a classic armed robbery appear to be happening. Samantha takes all the cash out of the register, then sinks to her knees, keeping her back to the window and remaining extremely calm. At around the five-minute mark, she gets up and walks back over to the kiosk window. She turns around, and a large male figure leans inside and ties her arms behind her back. As he's reviewing this footage, Detective Payne is shocked at the brazenness of this assailant, because the Common Grounds coffee kiosk isn't sat on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. It's nestled right between a huge gym on a busy road with a Home Depot right across the street, and the kiosk itself is a very popular local coffee stop. A few seconds later, the man nimbly leaps into the window of the kiosk and lands next to Samantha, who is kneeling on the ground with her hands behind her back. And Caitlin, several things I read about this video description, and I even found it and watched it, it describes him as looking like a cat. Mm-hmm. Like, and that is so creepy, but it really is. Tr- I mean, he, it also makes me think of, oh my God, what was that movie? Um, with James McAvoy, where he is like a superhuman and he is very agile. And then he's like, you know what I'm talking Split. about? Split. Yes. That is what I think of when you see him moving. It's very like feline. It is ugh, chilling. After roughly 10 more minutes pass, where nothing much seems to be happening, the man helps Samantha to her feet, then marches her straight out of the kiosk's small door and into the fresh white snow on the parking lot, keeping his arm tight around her shoulders like he's known her her whole life. After those 17 minutes, Samantha was led out of range of the security camera. By Saturday, February 11th, Samantha's disappearance had made national headlines, and she was a household name in Anchorage. Sunny had set up a volunteer search station, a tip line, and a reward fund that had already broken $60,000. His Facebook page devoted to Samantha's case was getting constant traffic from all over the world, and the Anchorage Police Department was desperate for a solid lead. Finally, at 7.56 p.m. on February 24th, Duane's phone lit up with a text from Samantha. It said, Conor Park, sign under pick of Albert. Sure enough, on the park's bulletin board, just beneath a missing poster for a dog named Albert, <laughs> oh. was a Ziploc bag. Whoopsie number two by the APD, the Anchorage Police Department. No shade to Detective Payne, who... I know was working around the clock Mm -hmm. on this case, but the APD itself was not equipped to, with speed, handle things in real time as they were happening. And apparently when this text came in, which the APD was, they already had access to all this stuff. So they saw, you know, that this came, they Mm -hmm. were the one that saw this text, you know, they had access to everything. Uh, Dwayne and Sonny beat them to the park by like 15 20 minutes and we're just standing there waiting for them to show up and 
I would be so pissed if that was me as a partner, as a parent, a sibling, just, okay, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for something. And then here's this super creepy text with the precise location. And we beat y'all there when you have lights and sirens by 15 minutes. That is a long time. That's my little... That stresses me out so much. Yeah. I mean, Dwayne and Sonny got there, but you know they were probably breaking 15 laws of... (laughs) (laughs) But... I would have been too. Gosh. Oh my God. Yeah. And you know damn well I would have been touching that Ziploc baggie. I would have been like, what is inside? It would have been so hard not to. Yeah. Absolutely. Inside the bag was a ransom note and several black and white Xeroxed copies of Polaroids of Samantha. In one of the pictures, her hair is braided and she's wearing heavy eyeliner and has what appears to be silver duct tape on her mouth and chin. A man's hand and muscular arm are visible in the picture, holding her head, and in the upper corner of the photo is a copy of the Anchorage Daily News, dated February 13, 2012. The ransom note was long and rambling and full of misspelled words, but it made a clear reference to Dwayne's ATM card, which had gone missing with Samantha, and demanded that $30,000 be deposited into Dwayne and Samantha's joint account immediately. If this demand was met, Samantha would be freed in six months. A fuck you. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Six Six months? (laughs) What are you going to be doing in those six right. months? Also, you know that law enforcement was like, uh, that's not good. Because when has that ever in the history of anything ever happened? Ugh. That's just somebody blowing smoke up an ass. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, investigators had two precious links to Samantha, the ATM card and her cell phone. The FBI told Sonny to deposit $5,000 into the account, not the full $30,000, in the hopes that it would frustrate Samantha's kidnapper and push them to make contact. In less than an hour, the card pinged at three different ATMs around Anchorage, and someone had withdrawn a total of $1,000. Samantha had now been missing for 29 days. I know it's like a random thought, like, because mm-hmm. I'm not law enforcement. I'm just mm-hmm. a bystander. Yeah. But, like, when that happens, wouldn't you think to just have an outpost near those ATMs where that's, like, I know that's me speaking from. Yeah. I. My understanding is just that they, at this point, the FBI now has really just been. Mm-hmm. brought in because the kidnapping note meant that it was kind of leveled up to a federal crime investigation right. so there was more law enforcement put on it but i just don't think they had the staff and the ability to station people and there hadn't, at that point, there hadn't been a pattern established yeah. of like, it wasn't going ping, 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 ping. It was right. just like the one. So I don't really know why. What is more frustrating to me is that they had these 
pings Mm -hmm. and we don't go in depth into this in this particular discussion of the case because it's not very relevant to who we know ultimately is the perpetrator Israel Mm -hmm. Keys but at this point investigators were looking at Dwayne and James as their prime suspects because they were fishy in the beginning not because as we will go on to see they are completely innocent did Mm -hmm. nothing wrong but I think that Sonny probably because of his involvement in like the seedier side of Anchorage maybe he was involved somehow in the drug trade we you know I don't know but it would make sense that he was not trusting of law enforcement and was less likely to be super forthcoming forthcoming with them and then so they were really looking at the two of them and And that makes sense yes and especially with it being Dwayne's ATM card they just really weren't I think they were thinking that ultimately it was just going to come back to Dwayne and James Mm -hmm. and so they weren't operating with the assumption that they were looking for some sort of outside perpetrator it was like oh it's always somebody close to home that that kind of mentality was what they're operating from and it wouldn't be insane no it wouldn't be insane because it's overwhelmingly they would be right but it's just so hard to look at these cases and particularly this one Mm -hmm. and not think of like a perfect world like Mm -hmm. they teach you in like nursing school it's like yeah your perfect world you have all the resources mm-hmm. you need you have all yeah. the information you need is yeah. given to you like mm-hmm. yes i heard a great analogy on something that was like the difference between a hawk's eye view and a flamingo's eye view of a situation mm-hmm. we now have a hawk's eye view and so it's easy to look at all of these pieces that's and parts really, moving that's really true that's a good point <laughs> And I adapt the flamingo. Yes. And it makes me very grateful that I'm not in the position of having to make these types of decisions. 100%. But you can see where just going in one direction and maybe going in that direction a little bit too hard can Mm -hmm. really throw an investigation and cause a lot of delays from the beginning and I think that's what happened here because they did not look for fingerprints at the coffee kiosk they did not think that it could really be anything other than Samantha running away or oh eventually we're going to catch Dwayne and James doing something sketchy and that's kind of what we're looking for and we're just playing along with his doting father thing when in reality he was a truly doting distraught panicked father and Dwayne I think love you Dwayne was just kind of along for the ride (laughs) I mean not doing anything one way or the other to help (laughs) or hinder just from the limited information we have but Uh. yeah they just were kind of working blind off of assumptions at this point I'm going to keep that hawk's eye view, flamingo view. Like that That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. Because that's where I struggle a lot. Yeah. Me as well. And I will continue to <laughs> to speak from the hawk's eye view and be like, what the fuck? What are y'all doing? <laughs> We're true crime podcasters. <laughs> We're going to act like we know everything. <laughs> Anyways. 
Anywho. When the FBI analyzed the extremely poor quality stills from the one working ATM security camera where Dwayne's card had pinged, all they could make out was that a tall male figure with an athletic frame was wearing a dark jacket with the white lettering C-O-R-P-S on the back. At this point, everyone in Anchorage was pretty frustrated with how slowly the investigation was moving. So I guess we're not the only ones shit-talking them a little bit. Sorry, Detective Payne. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Three weeks after Samantha went missing, the APD requested security footage from the Home Depot across the street from the kiosk. At 7.45 p.m., On the night Samantha vanished, the grainy surveillance tape showed a white Chevy truck with no license plate pull into the Home Depot parking lot. After 10 minutes, a male driver got out and crossed the road out of view of the camera. 20 minutes later, he reappeared in the frame, waiting at a crosswalk with his arm wrapped tightly around the shoulders of a small young woman, Samantha Koenig. Multiple people walked right past them. When the sign changed and they began crossing the street, Samantha yanked away from the man and ran. Her wrists were visibly bound together, and she was very panicked. But in a matter of seconds, the man tackled Samantha to the ground and quickly stood her up again. He whispered something in her ear, and the two continued walking together until they got to the white Chevy pickup truck. Then they stood and waited while several people milled around the car, parked directly beside the white pickup until they drove off. The man calmly opened the truck door, ushered Samantha into the passenger seat, and closed the door. First off, why did it take you three fucking weeks to get surveillance camera footage? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know we just said that whole thing we said (laughs) about the falcon and the flamingo. But honey girls at the APD... That seems like a no-brainer. It really does. I am I stupid? I don't, I don't think you are. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah. I would love to be hooked up to um, a monitor right now, mm-hmm. seeing my blood pressure. <laughs> right, the amount of people that they walked by, the fact that she was able to break away. And he still got her. Like, all that stresses me out so much. And the fact that this video footage is silent, it makes it all that much more eerie. And the times where there's just... The times where there's these long stretches of silence, he's very obviously... They're talking. Mm -hmm. Like, he's talking to her. And so we have no idea what he said to her, but whatever he was saying... I'm sure it was it was either terrifying as fuck or he was just reassuring her that she was going to be fine if she did what he said. And either way, it's that, you know, she's powerless in that situation. He has her restrained. Mm-hmm. He has a gun. 
he is a very large, strong man. She was very short. She was like 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. And yeah, and she's 18. I mean, she's basically a child. So it's... And then again, it's you didn't go to work and expect yeah. to be in this situation. No. Like it is... No. And she did exactly what everyone says you should be trying to do when she had a moment mm-hmm. she ran she tried to get away she tried to avoid being taken to that secondary location and even even if she had tried from the beginning like we just we don't know yeah we don't know the outcome like we can't do what ifs no, because no. it just didn't happen but it just hurts your heart to know that all of this was happening in plain fucking sight like people were just walking past people were right next to the car can you imagine like and this case has since been come so big that to realize that you were those people or that you might have been those people i could never forgive myself Mm-mm. oh Mm-mm. again that they didn't do anything wrong you're just going about your business but it just goes to show you how you never know what's going on right in front of your face like you really don't that's why i have a staring issue (laughs) i i size everyone up out in public i'm like what are you doing well alice it appears we've both got autism haven't we yep (laughs) well that's good to know (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh yes always stare at people guys it's perfectly fine to do so let your autism flag fly Mm -hmm. (laughs) anyways on march 7th six days after the last atm ping from Dwayne's debit card the card was used to withdraw four hundred dollars from a bank atm in Wilcox, Arizona, nearly 4,000 miles away. Over the next few hours, the card pinged several times along Southwest Interstate I-10. At 6.30 a.m. on Monday, March 12th, Texas Ranger Steve Rayburn was sipping his morning coffee and scrolling through emails on his BlackBerry when he paused on a detailed bolo describing Samantha's case and the ATM card tracking mission and asking for officers to be on high alert for her and a tall, athletically built man driving a white Ford Focus, particularly along U.S. Highway 59. Rayburn knew the Texas highways like the back of his hand, and he had a gut feeling that the suspect would likely head through Lufkin, which on a map looks like the center point of a wagon wheel with highways connecting and branching off every which way. Knowing that bolos are constantly being buried on top of one another in law enforcement email inboxes, he made it a point that same day to keep Samantha's case bolo at the forefront of communication with law enforcement in southeast Texas. The very next day, just before his lunch break, an officer spotted a white Ford Focus in the parking lot of a Quality Inn just off Highway 59 and called Ranger Rayburn. Rayburn felt electricity shoot through his body. Quote, once that car leaves, find a reason to pull him over. After an agonizing seven minutes of the driver doing absolutely nothing illegal, 
The officer idled behind the forward focus at a stoplight. He was incredibly close to being out of the residential area and onto the wide open interstate with a much higher speed limit. Uh, <laughs> get that focus. <laughs> Clinch the butthole. Yes. When the light turned green and the driver accelerated to 57 miles per hour, two miles over the speed limit, <laughs> the officer punched on his lights. Yes. <laughs> Incredibly, the focus calmly pulled over. Inside sat a man in his mid-30s, alone, wearing black wraparound sunglasses. He said he was from Alaska and in town for his sister's wedding. The name on the driver's license was Israel Keys. Back in Anchorage, Detective Steve Payne was sipping his 20-ounce skinny peppermint mocha with whipped cream. His frou-frou drink, as he called it. (laughs) (laughs) I just had to put that detail in. (laughs) Apparently, he got a lot of shit for that at his job and it was like i do not care i like my good (laughs) i like my 20 ounce frou-frou drink so good for you steve Payne. and was delirious with exhaustion from working around the clock on samantha's case he felt discouraged and frustrated but at around 11 a.m an unknown number lit up his cell phone detective Payne. I'm Special Agent Deb Ganaway with the Lufkin, Texas field office. We pulled a suspect in your case over for speeding. <laughs> Two miles over the speed. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I passed a cop yesterday. Um, oh. I think I was going 86 and a 65. Caitlin. And I was like, Mom, shit. And she's like, let go and let God. <laughs> I was just like, oops. <laughs> Oopsies. Meanwhile, Israel Keys from hell is like, fuck me. <laughs> Two, Two miles. miles. <laughs> Two miles. <laughs> Serves you right, bitch. Oh, my God. <laughs> Listen, we're going to be right down there with him one mm, day. But I think our that, elevator's going down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two miles. That's what I'm going to rename this story. (laughs) Two miles. Oh, that's just so beautiful. They always arrest them the dumbest stuff. It's always a traffic violation. I need to do like a fun run two miles. Yes. Like in honor of this. In honor of hating on horrible serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get on that. But anyways, with this call, adrenaline flooded Payne's body. Something was very off about this Keys person. He was drenched with sweat and agitated, and he wasn't being particularly cooperative with their questions about why he'd been driving an odd winding route from Alaska to Texas. And also, why... Did he have a bunch of maps on his passenger seat with various points highlighted in the era of GPS? Among various general items in Key's truck, like t-shirts, sunglasses, and energy drinks, police found one set of school photos of a young girl, 
Alaska Airlines flight confirmation for Israel Keys and his young daughter from Anchorage to Las Vegas for March 6, 2012, a black ski mask, a gun, a headlamp, a pair of binoculars, a black cell phone with the battery and SIM card removed, two pornography DVDs, and in Keys' wallet, a green Visa debit card with Dwayne's name on it and a driver's license belonging to Samantha Koenig. Oh my God. They had, first of all, to be shitting themselves. Second of all, they reached so hard to get access to his truck and they took a huge risk because they basically just were like oh you're being uncooperative and resisting and that's why we're going to look through your truck when really in other cases if a person that wasn't a heinous piece Mm -hmm. of shit had been doing this and like standing their ground you could really bring the police under heat for that yep level of aggression but they were i guess just collectively uh, feeling like something is so off here and then you had detective Payne back there with his frou-frou coffee being like you do not fucking let that person leave without searching his truck do whatever you have to do to like get a look in the truck and when they looked in the truck they saw enough suspicious material yeah to then be like okay we're gonna look in the wallet too oh oh bingo yeah yeah all of that stuff was mixed in there with school photos of i would assume the school photos were of his daughter you know and the has just such a weird juxtaposition and apparently like her little pink backpack was in the car too and some of her clothes like i just i just hate that so much i hate it i hate it now we gonna give you the rundown on israel Mm -hmm. israel keys was born on january 7th 1978 in richmond utah his parents, Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes, were members of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints based in Torrance, California. They lived in Torrance until Israel was five when his father, who held a deep mistrust of the U.S. government, decided to relocate their family to a remote plot of land in Colville, Washington. While he built their family a one-room log cabin to live in. Yeah. Yeah, I would emancipate myself from that family. <laughs> Five years old, you would emancipate. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so yeah. Uh, like, we'll get on. Yeah. With no electricity or running water, the family lived in a tent. Mm-hmm. Heidi and John Jeffrey also held a deep distrust of modern medicine, so Heidi gave birth to all ten of her children at home with no medical assistance and the family chose to homeschool israel and his siblings in their one room cabin this is something that 
I think is very controversial to have an opinion on because my opinion is, you know, my personal preference is like, hail to the no. Why would you do this? But even though it doesn't make sense, they at this point, they're not doing anything different than, I mean, I hate hate myself for saying it, but what people did for, have done for thousands of years and they were invested in that lifestyle. That was their right to do that. And unless there's actual, you know, abuse or neglect and people will be like, well, that is abuse or neglect, but it's such a gray area and at this point you people love to be like well this is why he became what he was I don't think that's fair no I don't think because there are plenty of people that would prefer to live this way that do live this Mm -hmm. way that live very peaceful sustainable lives this way and it's not an easy way to live no And I think that's why I'm being, I feel judgy about it is that I'm like, that sounds so hard. Why would you ever do that? But people do it all the time. And apparently that's what they wanted to do. So, I mean, it's more the fundamentalism that I take great issue with than that choice to kind of live off the grid. Like, oh, 100%. I can get behind the no electricity, running water home births for 10 children no matter i get that i respect that Ah. one room log cabin yeah 12 people yeah that's yeah that's definitely i mean unless it's a huge like warehouse type thing but you know that it wasn't you know that it was some little house on the prairie full-length feature film shit i personally could not no i would kill a sibling or two yeah yeah that is an incredibly primitive way to live, for sure. But in a way, like, I think as a child, it's, in, or even as an adult, freeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, like you said, how people choose to live that way and it mm-hmm. does not constitute yeah. or give any right to mm-hmm. how yeah. Israel turns out. Yeah. I think that if, as we will go on to see, when people live this type of mm-hmm. life, it can go one of two directions. It, it makes you very free and self-reliant and, and also, I think, like, open-minded and very mm-hmm. grounded, like, literally grounded with the earth. Right. When your reasons for doing it are because you want to be free and connected mm-hmm. to the earth and not have your mind clouded by, like, you know, obsessing over technology and the internet and all that stuff. But if your reasons for doing it are because you are a fundamentalist who is paranoid, who is mistrusting of anything and everything besides your immediate family. Mm -hmm. And it's all wrapped up in this kind of like fear motivation. Yeah, that you're forced into. Yes. And there's not this element of like, like joyful Mm -hmm. peace connectedness to the earth around it and that it's just kind of this like we choose to live a grueling life because 
it's our duty and we don't trust anyone and we hate the world and blah, blah, blah. that's where I'm like that doesn't seem emotionally healthy I don't know that's you kind of lot lose me there <laughs> with the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that doesn't end in a good place yeah they attended church services at another fringe religious group called the Ark, which openly practiced white supremacist and extremely misogynistic ideology. There it is. And you've lost me further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In addition to the Ark, the family attended another church in Colville called the Christian Israel covenant church that taught british israelism as doctrine that mixing races was perverse and that anglo-saxons were to rule over the perceived inferior races Mm. there it is even more that's that's bad keys would later describe this group as having a vibe that was similar to being in the militia oh god in addition to the french lifestyle the keys family lived Israel did not do a great job of making friends with his peers at church because he loved to constantly talk about how much he loved the time he skinned a deer alive. Okay. One girl who also grew up going to the church with the Keys family said that Israel made her skin crawl. Yep. I feel that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> From a very young age, Keyes became adept at handling firearms and hunting, which he and his siblings were expected to do to get food for their family. Several different times as a young teenager, Keyes was caught stealing guns from neighbors and in one horrifying incident, tortured a cat to death in front of a family friend and laughed when the young boy vomited in response to what he'd witnessed. Yeah. When he was around 14, he had an epiphany that he was very different from the rest of his peers. So he stopped altogether trying to make friends, and one of his favorite pastimes became roaming the woods alone, hunting small animals, and seeing how long he could remain sitting perfectly still without being noticed by his siblings. No. That is so creepy. (laughs) I... Ugh. That makes me shiver. By 16, he had become very adept at carpentry, built his family a log cabin, and began working for a contractor in Colville. Keyes also had a girlfriend. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. I mean, I... Okay. I want to preface this by saying I do not find Israel Keyes attractive in any way, shape, or form. However, pictures of him when he was young, I can understand, like, when he was a teenager, why, like, if you were also an awkward teenager, you know, y'all at the same church or whatever, you didn't know he was torturing animals, that you could have like a crush on him or date him just like you would any other guy because he's not overtly like he just looks very average like average you know normal looking person he doesn't have like these weird creepy like 
big huge eyes or like i don't you know like and again i think it goes back to the hawk view yeah yeah but there's nothing about his look that screams overtly like i don't know you know like like his sinister ugly ounce of his personality how would you yeah i that's a really good question i don't know i mean maybe he was you i could see him being very quiet and reserved yeah you know once he realized that people were not a fan of him talking about uh the things that he liked to do when he was alone that he just kind of shut that down i guess i don't know i don't know but yeah looks are absolutely not everything no even if he was henry cavill like (laughs) absolutely not yeah personality wise yeah he also kept a journal from early childhood that was full of bible verses and expressed extreme guilt over lusting after his girlfriend oh boy that's also scary yeah that's also scary and as a somebody that is no longer identifies as being a part of the evangelical Mm -hmm. christian church that is completely normal behavior for a teenage boy right be and girl because you there's so much shame yes there's so much shame piled on you around like healthy normal sexuality that i could easily see where somebody like him who was already so isolated already felt that he was different Mm -hmm. and on the fringes could kind of just like lump all that together and i can see that and that's sad that yes that he had that deep shame over i mean if he was just we don't know exactly what he was saying in that journal but if he's just like I'm sexually attracted as a teenager to my girlfriend. You shouldn't feel shame over that. But that's what you're indoctrinated to have towards anything related to sex as a young adult in any sort of religion. Yeah, bad things. Absolutely, yeah. It's just it's all bad, and so many of these aspects of Keys's early life are really fascinating mm-hmm. to me and we've we're kind of talking about this before Caitlin but a lot of the the good things that we can separate from the bad stuff that mm-hmm. was happening like the setting fires and the stealing guns and torturing animals that's completely in its own separate category mm-hmm. but it gets lumped in with the them living off the grid with them with him being very adept at hunting with him having like these backcountry skills but he I has think, 10 siblings oh my gosh who are not israel keys exactly and you know they all had those skills as well exactly because it was expected of them so it didn't i don't think it had anything to do with the way the area See, in which they were raised the fundamentalism yes a hundred percent the the mistrust 
like deep mistrust mm-hmm. of anything that was not that the authority that they viewed within that fundamentalist church. I mean, that to me is the the problem mm-hmm. stuff that we should be worried about and not the I don't think the isolation no helped. I'm no. sure he was not paid attention to. Um, yeah. You know, and was just kind of like whatever was already there inside of him instead mm-hmm. of it being like worked through was just buried deeper and deeper. Like I think you could argue nurture versus nature. Mm-hmm. I think very much nature his nature is to blame like yeah. it was embedded in him long before yeah. yeah he is who he is yeah but the nurturing aspect didn't help right especially the fundamentalism i mean the if you look up the beliefs of the ark and that other church i mean and we just kind of alluded to it here but they are heinous and you can actually find information from the Ark, which wasn't even the worst one, still online. And they specifically say that basically the reason why the world has gone to shit is because white men have not assumed their rightful place as like being in control over women and other races. And that's just, yeah. And you as a white male being raised in that world you're oh, going to have it pumped into gosh. you that you know it is your rightful place to dominate to control you are inherently more valuable you are inherently better you are women inherently are subordinate to you and so when you combine that with that isolation that deep self-loathing that you know that he was aware that kids were giving him the side eye that Mm -hmm. they didn't want to be around him you know that girls made comments as girls are warranted to do Mm -hmm. and it was fully justified them doing so because he was being like i enjoyed skinning a deer like alive then he's it's just all of these things are compounding and brewing that storm that nurturing that nature that deviant nature that was already there mm-hmm. and that's uh yeah it's never just the one thing it's always a combination of factors that i think compounds upon what's already within somebody yes and that's what we constantly are fascinated with as people on the outside of that is what is that like mm-hmm. what where does it start is it there from day one of conception does it happen when you get dropped on your head as a baby you know like what is that and I'm... if anybody don't say for fuck's sake if anybody says it's your inherent sin nature then i will <laughs> delete and block immediately <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think we're all inherently able to do good, yeah. but I also think we are all able to do horrible, horrible oh, things. Oh, 100%. But it's something yeah. in us that stops yeah. us. 
Exactly. And it's that when that inner ding, 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 ding mm-hmm. is not there. Yeah. Or it very quickly gets snuffed out. Yeah. We want to understand when did it happen? Why did it happen? Yes. Because could that happen to me? You could that happen to someone people, I love? Again, Israel Keys had 10 siblings. Yeah. And he is the only one who mm-hmm. turned out like this. Yeah. And a mom and a dad, you know, that by all accounts, I mean, I don't know anything about them other than they actively put them in a very, very problematic religious yeah. environment. And so that's not like all of that's bad. But at the time, it wasn't illegal. And I don't think it would be I today. Mean, even Yeah. You have the right to raise your kids. Yeah. How you want. Yeah. Just very... Oh, man. I wish so badly that I could have, like, a fly-on-the-wall view, like, compilation sped up of just all of these things so that I could understand the why but and we haven't even really gotten further into the stuff yet but it's just the knowing what eventually happens Mm -hmm. and his upbringing it really is very different from a lot of these other types of killers that we talk about like Bundy, Gacy, Mm -hmm. Dahmer, BTK, the ones that are considered like the prolifics, they, they didn't grow up in families, huge families with lots of siblings learning how to be self-sufficient. There was incredible amounts of like abuse, substance abuse, like all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, there's no one formula that makes so, yeah. that makes a makes a killer and in addition to the journaling about Key's lusting over his girlfriend around this time in his life so when he would have been about 15 16 his family actually relocated to Smyrna Maine where they made a living by collecting sap for maple syrup production in a mostly Amish community. Uh, that's some hard work. That That is not fun. I've watched some YouTube videos on that. <laughs> oh, God. These poor fucking kids. I... <laughs> for God's sake. And during this time... Their mother, who was already a fundamentalist, became even more religiously zealous and paranoid. So as they began to get older, the Key's children were forced to secretly run off and watch movies with friends so that their parents wouldn't find out. They were also forbidden to learn musical instruments because their parents believed that these were against God. So during all of this, you can see that the siblings are beginning to actively rebel against Mm -hmm. the parents and be like, um, this is a little bit much, guys, even for us. 
And sometime during this period, Israel Keyes actually formally renounced his Christian faith to his mom and dad and said that he was an atheist. And this resulted in a, yeah, this resulted in a very intense argument, which led his parents to evict him from their home. And they shunned him for apparent blasphemy. Not only did they kick him out, they then instructed Israel Keyes's younger siblings, who adored and looked up to Keyes, to never have contact with him again. Caitlin, that, to me, if there was a, oh. something that was going to then, like, there's already something like bad there. Because that was his... That was his world. Yeah. And you just completely cut him off. Yes. Our wonderful father-in-law that we love very much is one of 13 siblings. And to this day, they are all incredibly close Mm -hmm. with each other. And it's awesome how close they are. But I, to see how close they are as, you know, now adults who are in their 50s and 60s, the thought of if you are a child that is you're already weird as fuck and you have issues that we fully addressed Mm -hmm. but you're very close with your siblings who adore you and look up to you and then suddenly that is yanked away that ain't gonna do good things i not a psychologist but i think we can agree on on that Uh, and should they even have been, you know, cause he was, there wasn't good stuff in there. And so I'm sure it's for the best ultimately for their sake, you know, you have to talk about that angle too, but mm-hmm. yeah, this is, yeah, this is a lot of, it's just quite a, quite a mind fuck. Yeah. So, with that, Mm -hmm. he then said, actually, you know, I'm not only an atheist, I have now developed an intense interest in Satanism, and said he was going to carry out a ritualistic murder. So, we are now seeing the spiral um, to a place that really isn't good. And then, in the summer of 19 it's unclear if it's 1997 or 1998 israel keys committed his first sexual assault on a teenage girl who had been tubing with her friends down in the deschutes river in maupin oregon apparently this was not his first sexual assault and israel keys later admitted that he stalked this girl from a tree line before, quote, violently sexually assaulting her, whom he estimated to be between 14 and 18 years old at knife point. This had been the girl he was originally planning to murder as part of this satanic ritual, but 
Keys ultimately let her go in the river inner tube he had abducted her from. He would later tell investigators, quote, I was too timid. I wasn't violent enough. So I made up my mind. I was never going to let that happen again. Uh, and that oh is where, <laughs> that is the horrible point where we're going to pause part one of our telling of the Israel Keys story. And we're sorry if you guys get annoyed by commentary, but this is one that we never tire of talking about because There's it's such so a, much to talk about. Yeah. Yep. And we haven't even gotten into his true acts of Yeah. Oh, there's a plenty more coming. But now you have a really good a layout a good, of a his layout. background of his psyche kind mm-hmm. of and the the case that was the breakout case where the world discovered this person because keys it this was very different in the sense that a lot of times i feel like it's way after the fact mm-hmm. that these people get caught and then it's not actively because of an active investigation that's going on it's because like somebody found something in a box mm-hmm. or like you know or like a body is found and then they start putting the pieces back together but this was an active what began as a small time missing person a missing at risk runaway teen and then it just blew up this huge what the fuck is this person that we just got so we're gonna be covering all of that in part two the days of interrogation with israel keys where he confesses to not only samantha koenig's abduction but the murder of multiple other people and we're going to be doing a little bit more of a deep dive into the psychology of certain types of killers particularly uh, the type of killer that Israel Keys is and yeah that's that's how we're gonna wrap up part two but it's a lot Mm-hmm. Be sure to give us a like and mm-hmm. follow on Instagram and TikTok at Camping is Canceled. Please <laughs> like and review us. That is greatly appreciated. Yes, yes. Like and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And we are starting to post some more reels of those like short form video content where we give you little snippets of thoughts on cases and things like that so we want you guys to be engaging with those as well those are fun to make and it lets us kind of talk about cases that maybe we don't have time to devote a full episode Mm -hmm. to that week I think the last one I did was the Gypsy Rose Mm -hmm. stuff because there's been so much about her with her recently being released from yeah. prison have yeah, find that on instagram guys and yeah tell us what you guys think yes because that's a can of worms uh, yeah i'm trying to think if there's anything else we have to announce i don't know if we've talked about this yet caitlin but 
we do want to let you guys know that very soon dropping in your Instagram feed because we'll be doing multiple posts about it and it'll be on the website. We are very hard working on a digital, really cool digital resource for you guys that is a folder or a kit that our personal version is called If I'm Not Where I'm Supposed to Be. (laughs) (laughs) And it is basically almost 40 full pages of editable, downloadable PDF content for you to sit down, go through, and fill out to your heart's content in Mm -hmm. incredible Mm -hmm. detail every single possible little thing that you would want somebody to know, be it a loved one or investigators, in the unlikely event that you are not where you are supposed to be. And guys, this is not meant to be a way of I very much resent people saying that true crime podcasters glamorize victimhood or want to role play victimhood. That is, I guess that does happen, but that is not at all what this is. And this is meant to be a tool to give you and your loved ones and God forbid if ever needed law enforcement peace of mind and it's called being prepared. Yes, it's called being prepared. It's called not being caught with your pants down. Like, even say if I was, if you're like on a fucking hike or something and you lost your Truly. satellite phone and you needed somebody to very quickly know everything about you, that was going to mean you were going to get found more quickly. That all of that is in this packet. And yeah, we've been working really hard on it. We're excited to put it out there for you guys. So be looking for that to drop in your feed within the next few days. And you'll be able to just click the link and drop a few dollars and then it'll be downloaded to your inbox. With that, sorry you had to hear so much about Israel Keys this week. Be prepared for next week. (laughs) Be prepared for next week. (laughs) Catch you back later. Uh, Bye. Bye.